Well, if you open your Bibles to 1 John, we're going to be in chapter 2. First uh, John identifies four elements or components that are required in fellowship. And we remember that this letter has everything to do with being in fellowship with God. And uh, you can't be in fellowship with God if you're not in fellowship with each other. So uh, they go hand in hand, fellowship with one another, fellowship with God. And of course this fellowship is involving other Christians specifically. So fellowship among each other in the body of Christ and fellowship with God. And so there's four components or four elements or uh, these are the four um, confession and obedience, godliness and doctrine. Consider them as four legs to a table. And so you have to have all four in order to remain in fellowship with God. And this is the, the facts that are presented in this letter. Um, the last two that we're going to be introduced to, godliness and doctrine, are presented to us in this letter in the form of a warning. And so today we're going to be looking at a warning that involves godliness. And so uh, let's read the passage together. Um, here's the verses we're looking at, verses 15 through 17. So beginning in chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever. So this is our passage. And so in this passage, that we are being introduced to this third component, which involves godliness. And the opposite of godliness is worldliness. Now, so far in our study, uh, we have recognized how uh, a word can have more than one meaning. Uh, a word can have different nu nuances. And so uh, how, do you, how do you know what the word means when you read it? Well, you have to know the context. And... Uh, whether we like it or not, I am just—I have a real problem with, you know, diving in without developing the context. And so I spend probably way too much time reminding us of things we've already studied. But it's so critical for us to remember context. And so when you come to a word in the Bible, um, you have to know the context to see exactly what it's talking about. We saw this uh, in chapter one, verse five, when it told us that God is light. God is light. Well, light is not God, but God is light. It's telling us a characteristic of God, an attribute of God. It's trying to tell us something about who He is. Well, when we go to chapter 2 and we get to verse 8, I think it's verse 8, let's see. Yeah, in verse 8 it tells us that there is the, the true light that is uh, already shining. And in that situation, we're talking about light again. Except this time, the picture is that it's nighttime and the dawn is coming. And off in the horizon, you can see the sun coming up. And so when you see that light coming up, you know that the daylight is inevitable. It's inevitable that the night is done. The night is doomed. It is over. It's only a matter of time. 
that light on the horizon is going to keep rising into the day. And so it's telling us that the true light is already shining in the darkness. And so there, it's using the same word light, but it's talking about something different. God is light. The true light is shining in the darkness. Well, it's still talking about God, but it's talking about Him in a different way. When it's talking about the true light is already shining in the darkness, it's talking about when God began His plan, His final plan of of the remedy, the, the solution to our sin problem, the solution to the problem we have in creation, in all things, the complete universe is under this corrupt uh, law of sin and death. And so when Jesus came in the form of a man, that moment, that incarnation, when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, that was the beginning of the true light shining in the darkness. And over a period of time, there's been a positive progression of this playing out when Jesus was finally born in Bethlehem, when Jesus became a grown man and He, he walked among us and uh, He uh, died on the cross and paid the price for our sins and then He rose from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. And so the true light that's shining in the darkness, that's already shining in the darkness, is letting us know that uh, our hope is fixed upon His return because ultimately we are going to see Jesus as He is today, in His glorified state. When Jesus comes back, we're going to see Jesus as He is in all of His glory, and the fruition of God's plan will be complete, at least in that respect. And so you can see that we're talking about God being light, but then here in chapter 2, the true light is shining in the darkness. It's talking about God again, but it's different. It's talking about the incarnation, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, just simply by looking at the context, we have defined the word light in two different ways. We talked about how in the epistles, when Paul will say that we are in Christ, and how different that is here in this letter when John will say that we are in Him. Because in Christ, Paul's talking about salvation, but in John, when he says in Him, he's talking about fellowship. You know, if, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If any man be in Christ, that's salvation. But here, we are encouraged to remain in Him, to remain in fellowship with Him. And so, these simple words have different meanings based upon the context. And so, today, we are going to be introduced to a new word. It's the word cosmos. It's the word world. And we just read the passage in verse 15. It tells us, do not love the world. Well, we know that for God so loved the world. And so right off the bat, we can see that there's more than one meaning to the word world. And basically in the Bible, you guys, there's basically three general meanings to the word world. Um, we'll go through them quickly. The first one has to do with the creation. And this is true in the Old and New Testament. Whenever it talks about the world, it's, it's going to talk about it in these three different respects. One of them is the creation. And I've chosen Ephesians 1.4, for He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so when we use the word world, when we're talking about creation, we're kind of being specific. It's not really the universe. It's more the earth, this planet, this world that God created that man is going to inhabit. And so when we talk about the world, it's really talking about where we're at. 
that's the world. And incidentally, it says in him, and this is again Paul, and so he is talking about salvation. This is actually talking about how we were elected for salvation. We were elected to be in him. So again, the context is everything, isn't it? So sometimes when we're talking about the word world, we're talking about the, the creation, the, the planet, where we live. Other times, it's talking about people. For God so loved the world. He's talking about people. And many times when he's talking about people in this respect, when he uses the word world, he's talking about fallen humanity, sinful humanity, lost humanity. So it's talking about people. And I, I, put, I think I put 1 John 2.2 2 up there. It's a, a verse that we've quoted many times each week as we've come together. And he is the propitiation for our sins, but not just for ours, but for those of the, of the whole world. So all of the lost people on planet Earth, this is the world. Well, in our context this morning, we come to the third type of way the, world, the word world is used. And it is a system that is opposed to God. Its goals, its values are in opposition to God. It is a system. That verse I gave you in Ephesians 2 is talking about how we as Christians have been saved and how we have been delivered out of this situation. And so it tells us that in which you previously walked, you don't walk that way anymore because now you're a Christian, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. The ways of this world. And so we are talking about something that is bad. And so that is why in the epistle here, John says, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. Down here in the offering plate, we have some money. And... Uh, uh, is that money bad? Is it intrinsically good? Is it intrinsically bad? What makes money bad? What makes money good? So the world and the things that belong to the world. So it's when things in the world are used in the wrong way, they become things of the world. It doesn't mean the creation's bad. It just means that sometimes we use it in a bad way. And so the world, uh, verse 15 here, it says, do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. So we're talking about a system that, uh, that has been built to make man happy without God. And if you think about people you know that don't go to church, that, you know, maybe they call themselves Christians or who, whatever, you know, but just people that, you know, claim to be Christians or they, they're not Christians at all, but they don't go to church, it's really got no big deal in their life. If you think about those people, what they do in their day, their life ambition is to be happy. You know, nobody wants to be sad and depressed and miserable. We, we all want to be happy and enjoy life. And what people do is they, they try to find a way to be happy without God. And things happen in life and all of a sudden it's, it's bigger than we are and we don't know what to do. And so sometimes people will reach out to God and they'll pray to Him. But when they get through that bump in the road, you know, they go back to that system, that way, that, that lifestyle that is built upon wrong principles. It's built upon wrong goals. The desires are wrong. 
because what it has done is it has excluded God from the picture. I want to be happy. You and I both do. All of us do. But so many people are searching out their happiness without God. They have excluded Him. He's not part of what's going on. So this is what John is talking about. He's drawing a contrast between loving God and loving the world. Trying to find your happiness through Him and trying to find your happiness through this broken, defeated system. So we're not saying that the creation is bad because it's not at all. It's just that the darkness is what is wrong. The darkness is what is bad. Now just a few things. Jesus in chapter 14 of John, verse 30, the Gospel of John, he tells us that, that Satan is the ruler of this system. And, uh, you know, sometimes you talk about how, you know, Satan made me do this, or Satan's tempted me, or whatever. Well, sometimes it's just you're the tempter. Sometimes it's your sin nature, you know, your evil desires and stuff. So he's not always responsible, but, uh, you know, your sin nature plugs perfectly into this system. This, the system of the world. It's natural for us. And so uh, Satan is the ruler of the system. And in the book of Revelation, it tells us that, that Satan has succeeded in deceiving the world. The entire world is under his deception. Uh, here's the verse. It's chapter 12, verse 7. And he's talking about something that he saw happen when Satan was thrown out. But uh, he says, so great the dragon was thrown out. And then he begins to describe that dragon. See, and he says, he says that, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And look what he's done. The one who deceives the whole world. You see, we were, we were blind. But... We were blind, but now we can see. Uh, now we have understanding. Uh, we quoted 1 John 5.20 last week, and we, it talks about how God has given us understanding. And so uh, God has actually rescued us from a really bad situation. He has, he has delivered us and rescued us from the, this ruler from the powers of this ruler. He has delivered us from this ruler's deception. He has rescued us from this world system that is doomed. And he has rescued us from, our, from the wages of our own sin. And so it's an incredible thing that God has done for us. And I know that you're in 1 John. And I'm going to ask you to turn to one other place in the Bible. Uh, keep, your, keep your hand in 1 John as we read this passage. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll put it up here on the, on the screen there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So you have to go to the left there. Just keep your hand in 1 John. This is an incredible place in the Bible where God goes out of His way to explain to us what it is that He's actually done. For you and me. Um, the condition that we were in and how He's delivered us from that. So it begins in chapter 4 of, of 2 Corinthians. And 
I'll read the whole thing there just so we get the basic idea. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message. There's the purity of the message. We're going to talk about that. But in God's sight, we commend ourselves to every person's conscience by an open display of the truth. So you see there, he is talking about how uh, their message is pure and they have protected it. It is not distorted. And it, it's been openly displayed. The truth has been openly displayed to you. And so that's who we are as Christians. Our job is to openly display the truth. To not distort it. To not apologize for it. But to announce this wonderful thing that we have. And then in verse 3, look, he says, But if in fact our gospel is veiled, if anybody is distorting it, it is veiled to those who are perishing because they can't see. Regarding them, the God of this age, that ruler, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves that Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. For God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And turn back with me to 1 John. So you can see there from that passage that God has actually rescued us from the clutches and the power of this ruler of this world. He's, he's rescued us from this world system because our, our eyes have been opened. And we have understanding. What a wonderful thing that has happened to us. And the wages of our sin... We've been rescued from that. The wages of sin are death. And so there's so many things for us to be thankful for. Uh, it's an incredible place of privilege. And this is why Jesus said, you know, you take a lamp and you put it up on the table so it can give light to the whole room. You don't cover it up. So what we have experienced as Christians, we need to share with other people because it's magnificent. It is the best. It is the most wonderful news anybody could ever have. And so uh, God has entrusted that wonderful responsibility to us. It's part of our stewardship as Christians. Now, in verse 15, it goes on to say that uh, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. And so John is giving us concrete opposites, uh, the concrete opposite of light and darkness. And so he wants us to see that there's no middle ground here with God. You think of uh, two teenagers that start dating. And uh, it doesn't take long before they don't have anything to do with their friends anymore. Just each other. And it's not long before the communication and that fellowship with the parents is severed. And you can see that those two teenagers go off together and they walk away from everything that God has put around them to protect them. These lines of authority that God has given them for their own protection. We can see that this is what happens. And so Jesus wants us to understand that to remain in fellowship with Him, we cannot be in love with the world. You can't do both at the same time. One will take you in one direction, one will take you in the other. 
And then in verse 16, it says that everything that belongs to this world is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And he gives the examples, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Both of these things are cravings. And you can see that they are cravings for things that you are wanting that you do not have. And then the final one is the pride of life, the boastful pride of life. That involves things that we do have. Many have recognized Eve's temptation, how she saw that the fruit was good, it looked good, and uh, how it uh, offered her wisdom and actually autonomy from God, gave her some independence from Him. So you can see all three of these lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all wrapped up in this temptation that Satan gift-wrapped for Eve. And uh, it's paralleled in the temptations that we saw Jesus experience in the wilderness. And so some studies can be done there and some time can be spent there comparing the two and, and you'll see But at the end of the day, God wants us to understand that the, the world is fed by lust and pride. Things we don't have that we want, things that we do have that we're proud of. And we take our own credit for them and we are proud of the life that we have accomplished. And so uh, our text will give us two reasons to reject the world. They're, really, they're two really good reasons. They're built in, in these three verses that we read. He actually gives us two really good reasons to reject the world. And it's only two, so it should be easy for us to remember. The first one is very simple. It means that loving the world is not loving our Father. You have to choose who you want to have fellowship with. When we choose the world, we're, we're forsaking His deliverance. And we're returning to our previous ruler. There's verses in the Bible, a pig returns to its mud, a dog returns to its vomit. The idea is that you have been brought out of something, don't go back to it. Don't go put yourself back under the authority of this system that is only bad. It has nothing to do with God. It's going to take you completely away from Him. The last thing you want to do is go cozy up and love the world. Loving the world is not loving the Father. They are opposites. James 4.4. 4. You'll remember when we studied that book here on Sunday morning, it says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be world, the world's friend becomes God's enemy. That's a bad place to be. We don't want to be God's enemy. The second reason up there on the screen is that the world is, and its lust is passing away. The world and, and the desires are not going to last. They're, they're not going to win. You know, um, uh, in the future... This, this desire that we have for the world and for sin, and it's, it's going to be gone. It's not even going to exist anymore in the future. It's going to be gone. And so John and God are both telling us that it is a fool's bet to put all your eggs in this basket because it's, it makes little sense for something because it's not going to last. 
Uh, we, we talked about global warming uh, a little bit. We, we were talking about the different political issues and, and how to look at them from a biblical worldview. And so I picked global, global warming. And, uh, but, um, and we saw that how a Christian uh, has a responsibility for the creation. It's part of our stewardship. We, it's been subjected to man, so we absolutely do care about our environment. We absolutely do. And it's part of uh, who we are as believers. That's on one hand. But on the other hand, if you are driven by the fear that if we don't turn this thing around in time, we're going to go extinct, that perspective is oblivious to what the Bible tells us about the future. In the same way, when we look at this election, whether you want Joe Biden to win or whether you want Donald Trump to win, all of us want to be good citizens. We all love our country. We want to see wonderful things for the United States of America. That's on one hand. But on the other hand, if all we are is driven by the desire to preserve the American way of life, to save America so that it never leaves. That is ignoring what the Bible tells us about the future. There is a future that we have been told about. And so put things in perspective. John wants us to remember that the world is passing away and the lust thereof. Our objective is to live for God. Our objective is to love God with everything we are and to love each other, love our neighbors. And in the meantime, while we're doing that, we are to proclaim the gospel. I want God to preserve the United States of America because I, want see, I, I, I see our country as keeping a lid on the globe. We're kind of keeping a handle on everything right now. We're keeping the world from spiraling out of control. You remove America, and I don't know what's going to happen. That vacuum will be filled. It could be bad. But one thing that's happening right now is while God is holding everything together through our country, it's the opportunity for the proclamation of the gospel. That is our objective. That is our motive. Not that we just can be number one, that we don't want to be under somebody else's thumb. You know, all that kind of stuff. Our 401k is protected. All those kind of silly things that's passing away. God wants us to be big picture people. Don't fall in love with the world. And I am a true patriot, so don't misunderstand me. I love our country. But I also love God, and I also know that my future is with Him. My hope is built upon His return. In verse 17 it says, but the one who loves, but the one who does God's will will remain forever. So that's the contrast. Living for God does not end. By the way, this was D.L. Moody's life verse, and it was inscribed on his tombstone. The one who does God's will remains forever. Fellowship with him does not end. This fellow is C.T. Studd, a British missionary. And uh, he was a missionary into China, and then India, and finally Central Africa. How's that for going around the globe? 
England, China, India, Africa. He wrote a poem. Part of that poem is this phrase up here. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When he was led to Christ, I was reading his testimony, but he says, I got down on my knees and I did say thank you to God. And right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again. And the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything. He went on to go into the mission field in China, and some people tried to persuade him otherwise because obviously he had many talents and abilities. But uh, in his poetic way, he said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run to a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And I especially liked how he spent uh, the last years of his life in Africa. But while he was in China, he married a woman by the name of Priscilla, and they had four daughters in China. And uh, he said that he believes God gave him daughters to ed educate the Chinese people about the value of baby girls. I can't hear you, Wesley. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's my problem. I got one ear, and it's not the best one either. Uh, so anyway, in closing, you guys, the Bible uh, tells us to be in the world, but not of it. And that's the hard part. We talked last Sunday about Chuck, Chuck Swindoll and how as a young man, he was in the Marine Corps and he was being stationed in Okinawa. And before he got there, they pulled into the Bay of Tokyo and all the sailors got off the ship and ran, ran ashore and carried on. And a lot of bad things happened, you know, and, and uh, we talked about that and how the, how the colonel warned him. said, make sure you, you're back here at 11 o'clock in the morning because we're leaving. And uh, some of them made it back, but not in one piece. Some of them didn't make it back at all. But we have to be in the world and not of it. And, Chuck Swindoll went on to say, he said, I could have went into my, into my quarters and hid under the covers in my bunk. That would have protected me from all of these things he was warning me about. But he said, that is an extreme. God wants us on the front lines. He doesn't want us to, to hide in isolation or to be undercover Christians, you know, where nobody knows that you're really a Christian. That's not the way God wants us to live our lives. He wants us on the front lines, and when you're on the front lines, you're going to get hurt. Some things are going to happen. You're going to mess up. You're going to try to play the drums in front of everybody and, and botch it, you know, on Facebook. <laughs> but uh, the, the front lines is where Christians are supposed to be. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And, of course, that's the challenge. And in John chapter 17, Jesus was praying to the Father. And he's talking about us. And he says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So let's pray.